to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Les Halliday and Dr. Sean McKenna to discuss early calf health and crossbreeding management. Les is a native of Northwest England and grew up on a mixed dairy, beef, poultry, and swine farm. He graduated from the University of Wales with a PhD in ruminant nutrition, specializing in forage feeding. He started working in Canada in 1985 as a research scientist at Charlottetown Research Center on evaluation of forages in relation to quality and animal performance, the effects of inoculants in silage quality and protein supplementation of round bale silage for feedlot cattle. Les then worked as an independent beef and dairy nutrition consultant for seven years until 2000, when he joined the PEI Department of Agriculture as the beef development officer. His current interests lie in developing aspects of PEI livestock strategy to increase the number of beef cattle raised in the region, and this includes dairy beef production. Sean was born and raised in Prince Edward Island, where he obtained his BSc in biology at the University of Prince Edward Island and his DVM at the Atlantic Veterinary College. He graduated from veterinary school in 1999 and worked for the Newfoundland Department of Agriculture as a provincial field veterinarian before returning to ABC for graduate training. Sean has his PhD in epidemiology and has completed an ABC Farm Service residency, which was American Board of Veterinary Practitioners certified for the dairy specialty. His thesis was entitled Development of the Evaluation of an ELISA for Yoni's Disease in North American Cattle. The focus of his research has been the evaluation of diagnostic tests for Yoni's disease, along with research on BVD, leukosis, lameness, and most recently, animal welfare. Sean has three kids, with the oldest having been very involved in 4-H. Over the years, he has spent his free time helping his neighbor with his beef shorthorn herd, along with a lot of time with his kids at the hockey rink and soccer pitch. John is currently a professor and farm service clinician for the Department of Health Management at the Atlantic Veterinary College. All right, so Dr. McKenna, Dr. Halliday, thanks for being with us here today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Maybe we'll start off with just a little bit more in-depth of your involvement with the industry, less uh, more so as the specialist in PEI and John as a practicing veterinarian and a professor at the Lynch Veterinary College. Give us a little bit more idea what you're up to on a daily basis. Sure, Brad. On a daily basis, we have some standard issues that we, we normally deal with. We get questions from all kinds and all different walks of life, and it could be anything to do from marketing to why did calves not perform as well this year? So usually it involves a farm visit and check out what's going on. And my background is mainly in nutrition. So we start looking at feeds and condition of the animals and how they're fed, what they're fed and how they, they start life. That's probably one of the most rewarding parts of the job is being out on farm and, and being able to talk to producers. And when you can make a difference, it's, it's a win-win. So I enjoy that part of it. Dr. McKenna, what does a regular day look like for you if you do have kind of a typical day? That's a great question. I guess I'll try my best to summarize it. As you mentioned, I do work at the Atlantic Veterinary College. I work in the farm service division, which means it's a, it's a clinic that goes out and does farm calls. My clientele is primarily dairy farms. We do have some beef clients, cow-calf, and a couple of feedlots and some small ruminant clients. So a typical day for me would be, you know, most mornings it's grab some students, jump in a truck and head to a farm to do some, either some herd house or some, you know, sick cow calls. 
but I'm also teaching students to do some, I do some class teaching, some lecture teaching. And of course, there's a component of what I have to do is research. So I'm, I'm doing some active research. Not to forget to mention too, I mean, the Atlantic Veterinary College is a resource for all of the Atlantic region. So sometimes I do get involved with doing some troubleshooting with some particular herds that aren't necessarily regular clients of ours or consulting with other veterinarians about problems they have with their own herds to see if we can be a lending helping hand. So yeah, no, no doubt you guys are a couple of the busiest cattle advisors that I know in the region. And again, appreciate your time with us today. So I, I think I'd like to focus today's conversation a little bit around what we've seen more recently with more and more dairy producers crossbreeding a portion of the herd with beef cattle. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how we, we manage those and, and care for the young cattle. You know, Les, in, in your work and in your industry development role, what are you seeing out there in the beef and dairy industry? And what's happening as far as breeding programs and how these calves are coming to market? Yeah, we're, we're seeing quite a mixed bag of things happening on the, the dairy beef side. If we go back and look at some of the history, we, we've always finished mainly Holstein steers. That was back in the day when we had uh, lots of potato byproducts. And those animals would be finished on a cheaper feed basically minimum 1,800 pounds, up to 2,000 pounds, send them up country and the U.S. packers would fight over them. When we lost our potato byproduct supply, then grain feeding was way too expensive. So we kind of lost that part of the industry for a while. But there was, I would say, probably 15 years ago, back then there was an interest in crossbreeding Holstein with Wagyu. And there was a market in Europe, but we couldn't get enough dairy folks involved in it to make it a worthwhile project. So that kind of fell off the table. And then it actually did come back at about five or six years ago, big time. Uh, we had quite a flurry of interest on not only Wagyu, but also using Angus primarily. That really spurred things on again. And we had a huge market that we could feed into using Atlantic beef products as a processor quite a lucrative market, but uh, in the end of the day, we, um, we couldn't get licensing to ship internationally. So there were, that project kind of died, but I think it really spurred on the idea that we could cross up some of these Holsteins to beef breeds. And Angus was often the preferred breed of choice, but right now I'm seeing anything from Speckle Park to British Blue to English Blue to Simmental to Shorthorn, you name it, it's out there. So it's really a mixed bag. I'm not sure if that's the greatest thing for the industry because we've looked at carcass traits on pure Holstein and we know that we need to basically beef it up some. So if you're using semen that from an, a bull that really doesn't have the right characteristics to complement the Holstein, we're still not getting the improvement in carcass traits that we want. But now we are seeing more people paying attention to that. So, you know, we've got a couple of feeding trials going and we're starting to see some pretty good rewards from crossing up with really good quality bulls. Yeah. So one of the things we kind of talk about internally and you know, have the conversation with a few dairy guys along the way is that breeding strategy for crossbreeding calves. And, you know, I think carcass traits is one side of it we need to consider. Dr. McKenna, are there other things we need to consider as far as calving ease or other kind of genetic traits that uh, we want to be particularly cognizant of when we're crossing dairy and beef animals? There's all kinds of things and lots of different balls that are in play for sure. And it's, it's kind of hard to summarize it, but I guess the thing that from my perspective anyway, personally is, is 
every farm's a little bit different. And just because your neighbor's doing something successfully doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you unless you can mimic exactly what they do. So I, I guess I'm sometimes cautious with making blanket statements about how this is going to necessarily work for everybody. But there is definitely things to consider. I mean, I, I, I can tell you horror stories from my personal experience of, you know, clients that decided, oh, let's go Belgian blue crossed on Holsteins. And I never, never saw so many cesarean sections in my life in that particular firm, right? So you, ha- you have to be cautious what you're going to use to cross over them. But I also think that we shouldn't undersell at the end of the day about no matter what genetics that we're using crossed with Holsteins, for some people, the, the it's the way we manage those animals and how they're going to finish out and how we feed them. Because for some people, it's a dramatic shift in the feeding program that they're going to have to provide to these animals if they're going to bring them up to finish weight for certain. But I mean, it's a reality that's basically been kind of almost pushed upon us. I mean, you, you can even travel to, not that we really necessarily worry about what's happening in Western Canada, but lots of feedlots in Western Canada are filling up with pure Holsteins because we just need the head counts and that's what's available. So that's what they're doing. And, you know, it's definitely different to feed those cattle than the traditional dairy beef cross or straight beef. I mean, there's different ways to do it. So we have to be reactive to what we need to do to make sure that we're filling the market that we need to fill. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's always one of those things is you don't like to put a blanket over everything and say, hey, this is the way it should be done. I think the the key thing for us is folks that work in the industry is making sure that the information is there for individuals to make the best decision that they can make for their herd. Now that we've got a little bit about the breeding strategy, Let's talk a little bit about getting that calf off to the best possible start we can. We'll start with you again, Dr. McKenna. Maybe even leading up to birth, what are some things we need to be doing with the cow and then you know, immediately following the birth of that calf to ensure that it gets the best start it can? Yeah, again, there's lots of things that are a component of this, right? And there's no doubt that the last three weeks before a calf is born is pretty important in the, in the development of that calf. And also the development of that cow's uh, ability to make quality colostrum. So it's certainly not the time to forget about what's happening with these cows the last three weeks before calving, because sometimes there's a lot metabolically going on with that cow, especially if if she's at any ways compromised, crowding or stress, it's going to definitely impact the calving process and even the first 48 hours of that calf's life, because it may have a detrimental impact on colostrum. So, I mean, we have to make sure that we're handling these cows close to calving in a manner that makes it as stress-free as possible. And then as we get closer into the calving period, I mean, again, it's there's absolutely no leeway on extra stressors for that cow. We got to try to manage them so that they're as stress-free and as comfortable as possible and that they calve out in a clean area. And sometimes as I'm sitting here saying this, it seems kind of silly to say it, but Sometimes the places that these cows calve into is kind of, it's not as clean as it needs to be. And sometimes the simple thing like hygiene can make a huge difference in the, in the start for these calves. Yeah. So comfort and cleanliness. I mean, it goes a heck of a long way for sure. You know, the first 24 hours of that calf's life is just the most important part of the whole process, right? I cannot understate how important it is to make sure that you're harvesting good quality colostrum from cows or letting calves even nurse from good quality colostrum production from a cow whichever choice you do as far as how you're going to deliver colostrum to that calf but i mean it's it's a game changer if they don't get good colostrum it's as as simple as that the first the first feeding is so important and when that first feeding happens and how good that quality of colostrum is is really a game changer i know we've talked a little bit about before in in season one about when we were talking about our vaccination program and that passive immunity but can we define a little bit about 
good versus not quite as good colostrum and, you know, maybe easy ways to measure that on farm? Sure. Because not all colostrum is created equal. That's for darn sure. And I do have some of my clients who, who I've convinced them that routine measurement of colostrum quality on all cows is important. And prior to that, they may feel that, oh, I can predict that this cow's colostrum is good and this one's isn't. But then when they actually go and measure it with a refractometer, they're surprised that, hey, they're not always right. So, I mean, whether or not everybody agrees that it's easy to, to purchase a BRICS refractometer and actually test the colostrum, I think it's a relatively inexpensive way to make sure I'm getting my calves off to a good start. Uh, because, I mean, if it's of poor quality, your choices then are, I'm either going to have to give a lot more of this poor quality colostrum or find another source of colostrum that's of better quality or supplement the colostrum that I have that's poor quality with something that's going to get it to the appropriate amount of immunoglobulins, the IgG count that's going to actually provide protection for this calf. And there's things that we can do prior to calving that can help with that too. Like in, in the, we could consider, you know, should I be vaccinating my cows before they calve to see if I can boost the immunoglobulin content in their colostrum? There's lots of things we can do, but to me, the most important thing to try to convince people, especially if you, if you feel like your calves are not doing as well as they should be, you really should be investing in a refractometer to test the colostrum to make sure you're using good stuff to start. Here are upcoming events brought to you by Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers. Our students learn to solve real-world problems in a friendly, hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study. Dal researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters, or designing smarter Christmas trees, Dal Agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more. Visit dal.ca slash agriculture. The Nova Scotia cattle producers are introducing an on-farm preconditioning pilot project in early 2022, where cattle preconditioning services will be available to members. Please visit nscattle.ca forward slash preconditioning for more information. The Sheep Producers Association of Nova Scotia and Perennia are jointly hosting a sheep ration balancing and nutrition webinar on February 9th. Please register in advance by visiting nssheep.ca. The Nova Scotia Cattle Producers and Perennia are hosting a grazing cattle on cover crops webinar on February 16th. Please register by visiting nscattle.ca. The Nova Scotia Department of Agriculture's fifth annual beekeeper symposium and Nova Scotia Beekeepers Association annual meeting will occur virtually February 25th and 26th. Pre-registration is required with registration forms available at nsbeekeepers.ca. At Atlantic Stockyards, regular feeder sales occur every second Tuesday throughout the winter with the next one happening January 20th. Please check atlanticstockyards.com for a full schedule. The Nova Scotia cattle producers have two programs currently available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program and the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many Nova Scotia programs open for 2022, such as the Cattle and Sheep Industry Development Program, which has an application deadline of February 28th. For a full list of programs, as well as applications and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. Thanks very much for that. And Les, I'm not sure if you have any comments about, you know, the importance of that good quality colostrum and the timing of it as far as gut health and getting that animal's, you know, even digestive system off to a good start. 
Yeah, I mean, there are lots of numbers kicked around there. You know, do you need four liters of good quality colostrum or can uh, can you do it a two by two? Do you need four all at once? I talked to a nursery yesterday and they thought that some of these smaller calves, trying to get four liters into them at any one feeding may be a little too much. You kind of swamp them. So he was leaning more to a two, then a couple of hours later, two more. So again, just depends on, on the situation. When we're dealing with, you know, traditional beef, cows if you can get close enough to strip one out and test a colostrum good luck but some i know some people do and they do try but also we push well i certainly do nutrition uh, was always considered that if you know the last trimester you've got to up your the game on the nutrition but i've kind of backed off from that and said no you've got to look at your nutrition from the whole cycle so if you're dealing with you know animals have uh, when that fetus is growing, different organs come into play at different stages. So look after the nutrition right from day one. Trying to get quality colostrum that you hope is going to be there at the end of the day. We certainly encourage guys to look at the protein nutrition so that we can get some of that good colostrum. And I've got some good fellows that they watch every every calf and they monitor how long they suck for and which side and that make sure that they get a good all-round bunch of colostrum that they need to get into them. So yeah, we, we do push the nutrition part if you, if you can't measure it. But I think there are some people now, certainly on the dairy side, that are, are monitoring colostrum from every cow. So they're doing it all the time. It's, it's no big deal. Just, just get it done. Give that calf the best start possible. Speaking of best start possible, what are some other things that, you know, not even just dairy beef crosses on dairy farms, but beef farmers can do kind of in general to get those calves up and, and moving and give them the best kickstart to their immunity and their health? Yeah, I, I guess what I see more on the, on the beef side, certain calving geese is, is critical. Um, anytime there's a, you have a hard pull, then both cow and calf are compromised. Yeah, there are some some of those cows calving conditions that they probably shouldn't be calving in. So when the calf is dropped, it's getting a, a pretty rough start. If you're outside and you're traping through mud and whatever else is mixed in with the mud and those teats are getting coated, well, you know, that calf gets its first suck. It's not going get, to just get colostrum. It's going to get a whole host of other things rammed down its throat, and that's just not the best start for that calf. Yeah, if you don't mind adding on to that, if I agree 100% with what Les is saying as far as on the beef side. I mean, it's, I certainly wouldn't want people to think I'm telling everybody to run around with your beef cows and measure colostrum because that would be a little bit maybe silly for some people to say. But at the same time, just some simple things about keeping it clean and where does that calf calve and what kind of conditions that calf's being brought into this world is so important. And, you know, sometimes when people look at me and they say, well, it seems clean to me, I mean, as silly as it may sound, there's lots of times I'm like, okay, take your jacket off and lay down where that calf's going to be born. Would you do that? Are you going to stay clean when you're laying there? Are you going to get wet and you're going to get mucky? Because if you're going to get wet and mucky, they're wet and mucky. So, I mean, it needs to be that clean that you're willing to lay down in the same area that calf's being born. Yeah, I think we've seen over the years, we've seen more of traditional beef guys moving towards, you know, late summer, fall calving. Just because they like to calve out on pasture than trying to calve out in a, a wet, dreary, dirty burn or outside, you know, in, in such harsh conditions. Fellows that have done that just say, I wish I'd done that years ago because it's just so much easier. Everything seems to get a better start. 
I mean, it's whatever works for people. Like I teach my vet students, you know, there's no one way to do anything and you have to read what the client's able to do and what the client wants to do. If you're happy with what's happening with your calves, great. But if you're not happy with the first five days of your calf's life, then you maybe should think about what should I do differently? And maybe sometimes, yeah, it's a pretty dramatic change in how you're used to farming. But if it means moving your calving season, then move your calving season. If it means build another structure, then build another structure. I mean, if it's not working, then we need to do something to fix it because it shouldn't be that difficult to get these calves off to a good start in the first five days to life. And if it's not working, do something. One of my clients, you know, the easiest thing for them to do was they weren't sure they were getting good colostrum. He found a, a local dairy farm that he could purchase colostrum up from and every calf that's born sucks its mother first. And after he's done that, he grabs that calf and tubes it with two liters of colostrum. So he knows that within the first, you know, six hours of life, that calf's got at least two good liters of colostrum and all of his problems kind of went away. So just find the solutions that are going to work for you. Is there a difference in how we would manage those calves early in their life? You know, you kind of mentioned the first five to seven days between a cross animal, a straight Holstein animal, or a beef animal, depending on which market they may be going to or the first five, seven days pre-transport for a lot of the calves, pretty much standard? Yeah, I tend to think it's standard. When those calves are dropped, they're all four-legged critters, maybe a different breed type, but they all have the same metabolism. Yeah, treat them, treat them as best you can and provide the conditions to, to get them off to a good start. And like I said, if it's not working, then figure out what is the main problem and work towards fixing it. It may not be done in one season. It may take, you know, a couple of different things that you got to try out, but at least give it a try. What about any early life stage vaccinations or treatments and to ensure that they, they get that immune boost that they may or may not have gotten from passive immunity from the cow? Great question. And again, I don't want to sound necessarily like a broken record, but to me, the honest answer in that, it kind of depends on what you need. In theory, if calves are born into a fairly clean environment and they get good colostrum from a well-managed cow that produces good colostrum, they probably really don't need a heck of a lot because most of the pathogens that they're being exposed to, they should get maternal protection from their mothers and they should be doing fine and off to the races and things for the most part, I mean, those antibodies from their mother decay over time, depending on the different pathogen. But even at the very least, the calves should be protected unless the challenge is really, really high for at least six to eight weeks, and they shouldn't necessarily need anything. So some of my clients that are able to manage their calves in a particular way that they come out really clean and they get good colostrum, we don't even think about vaccinating for anything until two months of age. I've got other clients that, you know what, there's a bit more challenge here. Maybe they're continually moving animals in, purchasing animals. So they're bringing in potentially different pathogens from other places. Yep. We're going to vaccinate some of these calves within the first week of life with either an intranasal to start stimulating mucosal immunity within the respiratory tract so that they don't get pneumonia in the first three weeks of life. But there's other times when I'm dealing with clients that they don't need to do anything and until later in life. So Again, I'm the type of person that I don't necessarily say, here's my vaccine program for all dairy beef producers or all beef producers or all dairy producers, which quite honestly, I know it drives some of my students crazy in the veterinary school, right? They want to know what's the right thing to do. There's a lot of different tools in my toolbox. I'm going to pull out the tool that I need to fix the situation if there's a problem here. The one thing that's standard for everybody should be really good colostrum. I can't state it enough. I know I sound like a broken record, but if you get really good colostrum from a healthy cow that's producing good colostrum, the calf should be good for the first little while. 
If there's something that's kind of making that difficult to achieve, then sure, there's lots of different tools in the toolbox, right? Whether it's a first defense bolus to help protect from scours, whether it's a calf guard vaccine orally to the calves to protect them from scours, whether it's an intranasal vaccine to protect them from pneumonia. There's lots of different things out there that we can do. I guess I just kind of come back to that basic point. If, if you're not happy with the performance of your calves, talk to your veterinarian, find some type of consultant that can help you figure out what are the tools in the toolbox that I can apply here to kind of stop stop that from happening so that I can have a very healthy calf that just kind of takes off, grows, does well, and, you know, makes everybody feel better about what they're doing. Nobody likes treating and dealing with sick calves. There's nothing probably more demoralizing than having to deal with sick calves. Exactly. So, so with the, the importance of colostrum, one of the questions that we hear a lot when we do a workshop around calf health, or we have a veterinarian come in to speak to a group of producers is what about retail colostrum, dried colostrum that they're able to buy at the feed store and, and how does it vary versus uh, either colostrum collected on your own farm or, or Dr. McKenna, you'd reference, you know, a, a beef guy bu- buying some colostrum from the farm. You know, there's, there's ways to test it, but my real question is what should you be keeping on hand? And if you're freezing colostrum, how long can you store it? How do you thaw it appropriately to feed and, and what's the process for that? And then if you're purchasing dried colostrum, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Again, great question. Great topic. And I know sometimes it does kind of provide a little bit of confusion and anxiety for people for sure. So I guess we'll start kind of ticking off some boxes here. Frozen colostrum is, again, if it's harvested from a cow that provides good colostrum is a great product to have on hand. Stored frozen colostrum is probably good for 10 to 12 months in the freezer. One of the things you have to be cautious with frozen colostrum though is the rate in which you thaw it out. If you thaw it out too quickly, you're going to denature or basically cook the proteins that are in there. And you're going to take those immunoglobulins that you're trying to use to protect your cap and denature them so that they're no longer effective. And so for some of my clients that, you know, that's great to have frozen colostrum on hand, cow calves at one o'clock in the morning, where the, I, I don't want to sit around and take the half hour it takes to thaw that out because that's about how long it's going to take to properly thaw out frozen colostrum is at least a half an hour in warm water that gets changed many times because you can't put it in hot, really super hot water. It's going to start cooking it. For some of my clients, we do a bit of a cheat where we actually use a product that was borrowed from the food production side, potassium sorbate, which is used a lot in making wine. It's a food preservative. And we actually use potassium sorbate to add to colostrum that we have on hand so we can store it at refrigeration temperatures for up to a week. So if you have a tight calving interval, you can collect some colostrum from other people's cows or even your own cows if they give enough colostrum and you can store it preserved in the fridge, which is a lot quicker to warm up to the right temperature to give to the calf. So that may be an option that you're looking at potentially. And then moving on to some of the other Uh, kind of like uh, commercially available colostrum products, whether they're colostrum replacers or colostrum boosters. I just need to remind people that those are great tools again to have in your toolbox to use when you need. Some of them are just basically giving you, you know, a certain percentage or a certain number of grams of IgG guaranteed in the bag. And, And that's really important to make sure we get the immunoglobulins or the antibodies into these calves. But at the same time, I just need to caution people. They're a tool, but I I always try to remind people that there's more in colostrum besides just IgG. There's a lot of other things that that cow is providing in her whole colostrum, like other immune mediators like cytokines and things, and potentially even macrophages and types of white blood cells that can help with immunity. You're not really going to get it in a packaged 
dried product. Those cells are destroyed. They're not even there anymore. All you're really getting in those packages are mainly just immunoglobulins. And that's a really important part of it. Don't get me wrong. But I always try to caution people that if you're going to use commercial products, it's a supplement and it's a helping hand, but it shouldn't be that you give up on using real colostrum totally and say, I'm just going to go with bag colostrum because you're going to be missing out a little bit on what's in colostrum besides just IgG. So now if we were tight on colostrum or maybe the, the cow didn't have enough, we've got some tools in our toolbox to replace that colostrum that wasn't there. You know, what's the, what's the best way to administer by tubing to make sure that there aren't other things that interfere or degrade the quality of colostrum during the administration processes? I think you should be really cognizant of there. I guess the first thing to start off with is whatever you're going to be using to administer the colostrum to your calf, make sure it's clean. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds silly, but it's simple. Whether you want to put it in a bottle and nipple feed it to them, or whether you're going to tube feeding, it's got to be clean. There's no better way of actually transferring disease from calf to calf if you start off with a dirty nipple or a dirty esophageal feeder. So it sounds silly, but maybe it's oversimplistic, but you know, clean them all the time and make sure that they're basically clean enough that if you're willing to stick it in your mouth. If you're not willing to put that nipple in your own mouth, don't put it in the calf's mouth. That's how simple I make it for people sometimes, right? If it falls and hits your boot and rolls around in the manure, are you going to stick it in your mouth? Nope. Then go clean it so you would stick it in your mouth before you stick it in the calf. And that's just not being silly. That's just being honest. That's how, how strongly I feel about hygiene. I know some people are kind of worried about esophageal feeders and maybe sometimes they have run into problems with esophageal feeders where they feel like they've either hurt the calf or maybe put a little bit of the colostrum into the calf's lungs. I'm not going to say it's not potentially going to happen or it's not a risk. I mean, it is, it is a risk, but the, probably my advice to people would be if you're not comfortable with it or you feel it's not working, ask your veterinarian to help you with that. Get someone to give you some advice on how to do that properly. A lot of it's about positioning of the calf to make sure you're doing it properly. If possible, you know, I like to have someone stand over the top of the calf with the neck extended up against their chest, kind of holding it there so that the neck is straightened out. It should be a lot easier to get that esophageal feeder down there. I also prefer, if possible, that the calf is standing, but if it's too early for it to stand, then make sure it's what we call sternal. So it's got its legs kind of front legs folded underneath them, kind of, you know, straight up and down as best as you can, instead of trying to do it to a calf that's laying on its side. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally, as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the week of January 14th, 2022. In the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia is $1.77 per kilogram, up 2.5 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was up 2.5 cents as well from last week to a price of $1.68 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $1.88 per kilogram, up 6.2 cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was $2.83 on the rail, an increase of 10 cents from the previous week. And in Ontario, live steers sold for $1.69, moving up 4 cents from last week. Call cattle Atlantic stockyard sold for 78 cents, while rail price at Atlantic Beef Products was $1.41, up $0.04 cents from last week. 
Calls in Ontario averaged 66 cents, up one cent from the prior week. Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $75, and good dairy beef bob calves averaged $157. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up three cents to a price of $1.54 per pound, and calves in Quebec were $1.36 per pound, an increase of four cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumber lamb is $14 per kilogram, and mutton sits at six. 50 per kilogram. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average 4.29 per pound at 59 pounds, ranging from 50 cents to 4.97 and a half. In Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs average $4.11 per pound at 71 pounds, ranging from 3.25 to 4.50. Use at Atlantic Stockyards average $235. And in Ontario, use average $242 at 153 pounds and range from $1.65 to 335. Make sure you check your association websites for additional pricing information. Yeah, just, just to back up what Dr. McKenna just talked about, those dirty nipples, one of our um, nurseries here ran into a problem. Good clean bottles soaked uh, those nipples in bleached water, but because there's a fat film that forms on the inside of those nipples, it harbors bacteria. And he was finding that after a couple of weeks of use, then those bacteria would find a way into the calf. He changed his uh, hygiene so that he ended up with detergent wash, then soaked them in, uh, in bleach water. And that ended his problems or, or that particular problem. There's still others that it seems to uh, seem to rear its ugly head from time to time. Another nursery that I was at was receiving good, healthy calves but they were constantly challenged from poor air circulation. And lo and behold, after about two weeks, those calves that were good and healthy start to go downhill. And uh, it was quite a mess to, to get them back on track again. Yeah, and, if, and if you don't mind me belaboring the point too about nipple hygiene, there's been many times over the last 22 years as a veterinarian, I've gone to firms that necessar not necessarily are my firms to help them deal with the crypto problem or cryptosporidium diarrhea in calves. And I would say probably, no joking aside, probably nine times out of 10, it's because of dirty nipples. Because cryptosporidium is a parasite, it's not a bacteria, and it loves, it loves living inside those little cracks of nipples. And in some places, it's because they only have two nipples on two bottles, and they have five calves to feed. And so they use the same nipple maybe twice without ever cleaning it. And I'm like, just go buy more nipples, and it will stop spreading crypto. And the nipples are pretty darn cheap compared to dealing with cryptosporidium in calves. Buy more nipples, buy more bottles. It's way cheaper than spreading it around. Seems like a, a pretty basic principle, but maybe not just something everybody, it's not the very first thing that comes to their mind every time. I agree. I mean, and maybe, maybe I feel maybe some people may, if you know, when they listen to this and they say that McKenna guy's nuts about, would you stick it in your mouth? But that's a pretty simple rule to remember. If it's not clean enough to put in your own mouth, don't put it in the calf's mouth. For sure. And, and, and you know, I think that's a, a pretty basic thing, you know, a good rule of thumb that's pretty easy to figure out as well. So let's move on a little bit. So now we, we've got some really nice, healthy calves. Uh, we've got, they've got some good colostrum. If we've needed to boost their immunity a little bit, we've done that. So now I think usually the first kind of seven to 10 days is the first decision point for a lot of folks, whether or not they're going to send them as bob calves or veal calves, or whether or not they're going to retain them to weaning. What do we need to do to make sure that these calves are 
safe and ready for transport and are healthy and vigorous enough to, to make that first trip off the farm at seven to 10 days old. I guess I'll go first here on this one since let's jump in. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And I guess it's sometimes hard for me to know exactly what angle I want to tackle this on. But with the, the essence of your question is how do I know these calves are ready for transportation? And, you know, basically nothing should get transported unless it's, you know, it's a healthy spry calf that's, you know, hopping around and vigorous and aggressive eater. I guess that's probably the best indication to make it simple, right? If that animal's an aggressive eater right up to the day you decide you're going to ship it, then it's probably healthy to ship if you want to make it simple. But if it's an animal that you struggle with to try to get it to eat and it's not drinking well and it's not, it, it hasn't consumed any solids, if it's a week old, then I start questioning whether that animal should be transported. I mean, that's, I guess, how I would try to simplify it. It goes basically on appetite. If they're good eaters, they could probably leave. If they're not good eaters, they should probably stay and, and try to rectify the issue. Unless I know you've done a, a lot of work on this, mm -hmm. uh, particularly over the last couple of years, anything to add there? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking if we could keep them on, on the farm for seven to 10 days, that'd be great. But a lot of them are leaving at, you know, one, two or three days of age. And sometimes you've had some colostrum, sometimes not. They may be on a truck for most of the day before they're delivered to the next destination. An animal like that is, it, it's compromised very quickly. And we, we see it in some of our, our nursery guys saying that, you know, the animal's coming off the truck and they don't have that, you know, the, the bright eyes, the two ears pointing upwards, they're starting to drop the head a little bit. And then they say, you know, within a couple of days, they're shallow breathing and they're starting to pant and there's obviously some distress going on there. Ideally, I'd like to see them on, a, on the farm for seven to 10 days before moving, but not always there. And it does make it difficult for the next guy along that takes those animals and has to deal with them. So, so Les, I also know that you've been involved a little bit in developing some early stage production resource uh, here in Maritime Beef Council. Are there any other resources that are kind of quick and easy to understand or to look at and go, yeah, this, this calf's healthy for transport, kind of checks all the boxes that you can point producers towards? We basically do the same thing as Dr. McKenna just said there was as long as that calf's bouncing around and it's been showing interest in some calf starter or picking on a bit of, bit of dry hay and eyes good and bright and it's obviously no scours and, and good shiny coat, no reason why it shouldn't be transported. But when you're doing that at one or two days of age, then you're already putting that animal under some severe stress. And I think that's, if we can get away from that, I think we'll have a you know, much healthier population of calves that are, are going out there onto the next destination. So one of the things that, you know, we, we kind of touched on, but maybe I'd like to just in the kind of the last string of conversation here is how important is it for the overall productivity of that calf to get a really, really good start with colostrum and, and good early health? How does that affect it as through the rest of its growing life? Yeah, we've, we've looked at um, some of the calves that are coming out and we have them on some fairly good feed. We've looked at Holsteins and Holstein cross calves and We've worked with a producer that wanted to put them on a, a really high grain diet. And we've done that with whole corn and a protein supplement pellet. You know, some of the, those animals that came in, they were just full of health and vigor. And there were some that you could tell that they probably didn't get the best start in life. So the ones that were doing really well, 
I can tell you that we shipped those to the plant at about 14 and a half months of age. And, you know, they were weighing uh, 1600 pounds plus. The ones that came in that were just kind of dragging their head a little bit and weren't quite doing so well, we still have them on feed. So their gain just isn't what, what it should be. And going back through some of the research done, uh, if you get a severe dose of pneumonia, chances of you grading double A or higher is considerably reduced. So if you don't have that lung capacity to bring in the oxygen to keep that metabolism going, chances of you grading high are, are pretty small. So we do see that from time to time. And sometimes you just got to cut your losses. We have some cattle there that I know that are just not going to make their target weight just because they don't seem to be eating as much and they're definitely not performing as much. And I think it all stemmed from not quite getting the best start that they, they should have got. And again, if you don't mind, if I add a couple of thoughts to this, I guess there's a lot that we're kind of learning the, and, and we're always learning, I guess, but the thing that we're learning more and more about how important the first weeks of life for these calves and how they perform, we probably don't fully understand the impact of that, but there has been some, and I don't want to get into too much specifics, but just maybe this, this will just kind of stimulate people into more thought that there's actually been some pretty darn good research into the effects of gowers and calves. Cause we're always trying to make things work better. And we're always trying to make things more, a bit more profitable. But one of the things that probably it was, it was research that was done in Spain that was using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs on calves with scours, primarily from cryptosporidium again, and calves, they got an anti-inflammatory dose, which basically stops the inflammation within their gut or helps mitigate that a little bit. They actually produce more milk as as heifers. So two years down the road, it made a difference in the in the, the gut absorption of nutrients to make an impact on animals in their first lactation. And wh- whenever we start seeing research like that, it's certainly whether you believe that's possible or not, that's okay. I understand that. But maybe there's a lot more going on in the first bits of life in these calves that's really going to set them up for success. We know there's lots of good research again out of Wisconsin as far as ultrasounding lungs to see, you know, like what's the impact on a little bit of pneumonia and longevity in these animals. And we're realizing, you know what, even though the animal may seem clinically normal because we can't necessarily measure it, but when we try harder to measure these things, it's really going to impact performance down the road. And I'm not sure we necessarily today want to go down into that rabbit hole, but there's a lot that's going on that we may not be able to see that's definitely going to have an impact. And so if we really want to try to do the best for these animals, we really need to focus on the importance of the first, you know, the first two weeks of life are so critical. Maybe we need to start questioning within the, within the industry, the beef and the dairy industry, what are we doing in these animals' lives in the first two weeks? And is there any way we could do just a little bit better to make sure that we get better performance at the other end? You know, there there are some fellows out there now that are doing some good tracking and tracing, and they're feeding carcass data back to the cow-calf sector. And if you're taking in a bunch of calves and there's one or two oddballs that don't quite make it, that information gets back to the cow-calf guy. And if he's got good enough records, uh, what he's telling us is that, you know, oh yeah, when that guy was three weeks of age, I had to treat him. So a poor doer was traced all the way back to, you know, an event that happened in his, you know, three weeks of life in terms of carcass quality, it didn't quite make it. So we are starting to see some of that tracking and tracing paying off now. So you guys have raised a lot of really good points over the last uh, half an hour or so they've been chatting. Is there one key message that you'd like our listeners to have that they can take home the point and really think about, about getting those calves off to the best possible start in the first one to two weeks? 
I guess you should be, uh, whoever you're selling those calves to, you should be working very, very closely with them because they can give you some feedback of, of what, what's happening, what's working and what's not. And I think if you work together on things, you can probably solve 90% of your problems. But if you're just raising calves and sending them out the door and you're not talking to the people down the line, you, you may be missing out on an opportunity. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with what Les says and want to just kind of add on to that maybe, and maybe this, this is me kind of getting a little bit political again, but we should be taking the maximum amount of pride in what we're doing here, realizing we're kind of all in this together. If, if you're selling your calves to someone down the road, you should want to make sure that you're giving them the best quality product they can get so that they can be successful. Because if they're not successful, who's going to be buying your calves next year? And this is something that I think if you don't mind me being a little bit more on the outside edginess of this, someone needs to buy those calves from you if you're not willing to raise them yourself. And we want to make sure that we have a market for those calves and someone's going to want to buy those calves. So let's provide those people that are purchasing calves with the best product they can get. And that's, that's just putting it out there because that's so important to me is to make sure that, you know what, the future is still going to be bright. We're, we're going to all be successful in this business. Yeah. And I, and I think there's an old saying goes back maybe to some of the, uh, some of the Maritime Beef Council meetings early in its infancy. One of the things that came out that if, if I'm a cow-calf producer and I'm selling Sean my calves, one question I should be asking Sean is, what can I do to make you more profitable? And he should be able to tell me. I 100% agree with you, Les. It's not a we and they anymore, it's an us. Yeah, if you yeah. want someone to come and give you a good price for a calf, then you better make sure that you're providing them a good product so that they're going to keep coming back to give you a good price for your calf. It's, yeah. it's just that simple. Well, with that, gentlemen, I think that's a great way to wrap up this discussion. Appreciate your time and expertise a lot and uh, look forward to chatting with you whenever, uh, whenever we can again. Thanks very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes. <laughs>